I just got back from vacation, and anytime I go on vacation, there's a good chance that I've probably been reading Pilgrim's Progress, because I love this book. There's not a lot of books that I read more than once other than the Bible, but John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress is one of those books for me. I just, I love it. Uh, it, is, it is a fascinating story about a man named Christian who is fleeing from the city of destruction. He's got word from a guy named Evangelist who comes and says, the city that you live in is about to be consumed with fire and you need to run to the celestial city, to Mount Zion. And the whole thing is just this big story about how, how Christian does that. And as he is pressing on along the way, he is going through all sorts of trials and tribulations and he meets all sorts of different characters. Some characters who want to help him to press on to the celestial city and then other characters who who are trying to tempt him to, to run back. And um, one of the reasons that I, I, I think I love this so much is I love the book of Hebrews, and they're so similar. It's like Bunyan just had the book of Hebrews in mind as he was writing this story about, about Christian fleeing. Because as we are fleeing to Mount Zion, to the, the celestial city where God is, we meet regularly people and things along the way that, that tempt us to go back. Let me give you just one little scene here from, um, from the, the Pilgrim's Progress. This is in the chapter called the Hill of Dif- Difficulty. So Christian is going up this hill called the Hill of Difficulty. He says, now when he got to the top of the hill, there came two men running to meet him. The name of one was Timid and the other was Mistrust. So all the names are kind of like that. They, they mean something. To whom Christian said, sirs, what's the matter? You run the wrong way. Timid answered that they were going to the city of Zion, but they had gotten up to a difficult place. And he said, the further we go, the more danger that we meet. Therefore, we have turned and we are going back. Christian said, you make me afraid. But where should I go to be safe? If I go back to my own country, the city of destruction, that is prepared for fire and brimstone, and I shall certainly perish there. But if I can get to the celestial city. I am sure to be in safety there. And I must venture on. To go back is nothing but death. To go forward is fear of death, but life everlasting beyond it. And I will go forward. So mistrust and timid ran down the hill, and Christian went on his way. I just love that scene. Because that's all of our lives, all the time, if you're following Jesus. That we have been called to go to the city of Zion. The celestial city. Where there's no more crying, or tears, or pain. And we get to see Jesus. But along the way, there is everything and all sorts of people who are going the other way. For whatever reasons they may go. And how tempted we are to run with them back down the hill, away from the difficulty of following Christ. Those are the same things that the author of Hebrews knew that his congregation was facing. And as he penned his book, he is doing all that he can to move them to endure the persecution and the temptations that are coming at them, calling them to turn away from following Jesus and to go back to to Judaism in their case. And what the author of Hebrews does is he 
He warms their hearts by showing them Jesus and how He's greater than everything else. And He warns their hearts by giving them words of caution and words of of, of warning, saying that there is nowhere to go if you go back down the hill. There is nothing that awaits you except destruction and judgment. And this morning in the book of Hebrews, we have come really to the pinnacle of the book. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12, and this is where we're going to pick it up this morning. It's on page 1009 in the Bibles that are in the pew racks in front of you. If you don't have a copy, um, that's our gift to you. You can take it with you, please. We think there's nothing better you can walk out of here with this morning than um, a deepened trust in Christ and a copy of, of God's Word. Page 1009, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 29. And in one sense, this last section here really summarizes everything that's been going on in the book of Hebrews. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read it for us, verses 18 all the way down through 29, and then we'll consider a few things from it together this morning. Would you follow along? Verse 18. You have not come to what may be touched. He's speaking about Mount Sinai here. A blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice who made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them for they could not endure the order that was given if even a beast touches the mountain it shall be stoned indeed so terrifying was the sight that Moses said I tremble with fear verse 22 but You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Verse 25, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, Things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. The big idea that we'll be thinking about this morning from our text is is this. The unshakable hope of heaven ought give us grateful hearts that worship God. The unshakable hope of heaven ought give us grateful hearts that worship God. This, this, this is what moves us to keep trusting Him all the way home and to not turn, turn back. 
To do this, we're going to consider three ideas that I think come right out of our text here. We're going to look at a, a terrifying encounter in verses 18 through 21. And then a glorious vision, verses uh, 22 through 24. And then finally, grateful worship, verses 25 down through 29. A terrifying encounter, glorious vision, and grateful worship. Let's consider this terrifying encounter that we saw here in verses 18 through 21. He starts off by saying to them, you have not come. And then in verse, you're going to notice in verse 22, but you have come. So he's, he's setting out a, a contrast here. And in this, this first thing, he's telling them, this, this church, that they have not come to the same place that Israel had, had come to. He's helping his congregation and us to see what a better position we have in Christ than Israel did at Mount Sinai. You see, as, as they assembled there at Mount Sinai to meet with God, they were told to stand back. To stand, to stand back. He said, put up, put up barriers so that people cannot come up the mountain. Because God is holy. And you can't draw near to Him. His holiness and His glory will consume you. Like a bug flying into a flame. And what He does for us here in verses 18 through 21 is He recounts the scene that we saw out at Mount Sinai there by, by by describing seven physical wonders that Israel witnessed when God descended to give His law and ratify His covenant with Moses and them there at Mount Sinai. First, he he mentions that it it may be touched. Mount Sinai was a physical mountain. He said, "You've you've not come to a geographical location, to a spot, a holy land as it were. They did. They came to a place that could be, could be touched. It was a physical mountain. You have not come to this, this blazing fire in the same way. Where God's presence, we saw there that His, His presence descend, descended on the mountain and, and it burned there on, on the peak to where the smoke was going up. And it was not, not consumed though, which is very interesting because as John mentioned during his reading of Exodus 20, this is the same place that Moses had been just a few months earlier, where there had been a bush right there at the base of the mountain that was burning, but that was not consumed. Well, now it's not just a bush that's burning where God's appearing to Moses, but now there's a mountain where God in His holy glory is burning there before His people. And then he goes on to use these other words, darkness and gloom and tempest. Those are the third, fourth, and fifth things that he mentions. There's this this cloud that has just encompassed the mountain with impenetrable darkness. Have you ever been near a storm that was so thick you could feel it? You ever been around one of those? So I just remember, my, those are some of the things that I, I remember about my time in Texas. I lived there for about 10 years, and I loved, I loved the big sky, and I loved when you could see storms come in. And very often you could just feel the weight of these storms rolling in. And sometimes in the towns we would live in, um, there would be warnings of a trumpet would go off, as it were, because there's, there's tornadoes, and you can just, but you can feel the whole atmosphere changes, it gets colder, there's darkness, there's precipitation in the air, there's a weight. 
And that's just a storm sent by the God who makes storms. How much more would this scene have been where there's the holy God of the universe who descends in whatever way He does that on this mountain? There is darkness and gloom and and tempest. Exodus 19 told us that there was lightning and there was wind and that the mountain itself trembled. It was wrapped in smoke. The majesty of His his presence was ushered in by this, this physical storm that Israel saw and trembled before. The sixth wonder there is this this sound of a trumpet. In the Old Testament, a trumpet was often sounded to alarm of an invasion. We don't know who blew this trumpet. Probably an angel here. Warning, the Holy One of Heaven has arrived. He is coming. He descends there. Then the seventh thing is His voice. The voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. In Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 18, um, this, is, this is what Israel said. Is, you, you, you speak, they're speaking to Moses. You speak to us and we will listen, but, but do not let God speak to us or, or see His great fire anymore lest we die. Israel Israel said, we we can't handle hearing His voice. He's too holy. He's too big. He's too glorious. We we can't be near Him. So Moses, you speak to us. Tell us what He says, because we can't bear to hear Him. Israel was overwhelmed. They pleaded with Moses to be their intercessor. Isn't it interesting how They knew they needed someone to stand between them and a holy God. Because they could not endure to hear His holy voice. Nor could they endure, verse 20, they, they could not endure the order that was given, if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. They're thinking if, if an animal who can't sin would, would be destroyed for touching the mountain, how much more people who are created in God's image and yet sin against our Creator. How much more would we be consumed if we would would approach this holy God with our lies? That, 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 That moment, can you imagine what it was right at that moment when God's holiness arrives and all of the lies that they know that they've been hiding in their heart were just exposed. Their lust is seen in light of His purity. Their greed and their covetousness. Their selfishness. Their anger. Their judgmentalism toward one another. Now before the holy judge. Their apathy toward this God. The one that they've been grumbling against all this way since they left Egypt. Their distrust. Their impatience. All of that is put on blast here as the Lord arrives and they see Him. They don't actually see Him. They see just the, the, the cloud that veils them from being able to see his, his holy presence. And it was so terrifying, verse 21 says, that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Look at that, verse 21. Look at those words. Terrifying 
tremble, fear. And that's Moses. Moses, the one who Numbers 12 tells us was the most humble man who ever lived besides Jesus. These words here are given to help paint this picture of of the weight of God's presence swirling around Mount Sinai. And what this is intended to do is to alert us to who we are naturally before a holy God. Israel sees themselves here as defiled and is unlike this one who is so set apart from them. I mean, it's, and it's, a, it's a scene like this that, that, shows, that shows our natural arrogance before God. I mean, think about it. It is, it is arrogant in our day And we mock the idea that there could be only one way to God. When heaven marvels at the fact that God would even make one way to approach him. The heavens can't, it says the angels, they long to look. He saved another one of those goons. Oh my goodness. Like they, they, they can't get over the fact that God saves sinners. And that he would make unholy, unclean, defiled people like you and me able to approach a holy God like this. The angels long to look into that. It's in moments like this that our strutting about on the earth that God made, breathing His air, seems so foolish. God is shown here to be God who is holy and unapproachable and completely unlike us. And it makes them tremble with fear. Because meeting a holy God in an unmediated way is terrifying. But how kind of the Lord to show this to us. How loving of God to not just leave us blinded in our sin, but to provide a gracious display of Himself that would bring us to our knees, that would bring us to say, as Isaiah did in Isaiah 6 when he stood before the Lord, he said, Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. They have this terrifying encounter here. Now, it's one of the things that needs to be noticed is though God's presence was there, they didn't see God. They don't actually see Him. They, they can't. They, they can't see Him. They would, they would just be incinerated. They couldn't, they couldn't handle that. And what the author of Hebrews is saying to them, this, this congregation, who you remember, is being tempted to go back to Judaism. They've heard the gospel about how Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets and the sacrificial system. And they're saying, listen, you know what? I think we're going to go back to Judaism. We're going to go back to Mount Sinai where we've got to stand far off and be under the weight of the law and have all these pictures of um, sacri- sacrifices that are, that are mere shadows He's saying, no, 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 you have not come to that place any longer. In Christ, there's something better. 
You have come to Mount Zion, which is the second thing that he mentions here, this glorious vision. So we have a terrifying encounter, and now we have this glorious vision in verses 22 through 24. Listen to it again. He says, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. He begins, verse 22, with that word, but, which shows a a contrast. He's saying there's a dramatic difference here. Rather than experience the terror and the, the distance that Israel felt at Mount Sinai, the church... The the true Israel, those who have trusted in Christ, you can come boldly to the heavenly Mount Zion where we meet with God in joy and in awe. He says here in verse 22, you have come. It's in the perfect tense. which what What that means is it describes a a completed action that happened in the past that has produced a, a result in the present. You have come. So when someone turns from their sin and trusts in Christ, they are justified. And they, they are ushered, as it were, into this place. And he says, now you have come. This happened in the past, and even now you have come. And what this captures for us is this There's an already not yet reality to the Christian life. He's going to paint this picture of this this heavenly place, and he says, You've already come there. But listen, y'all, this ain't heaven, all right? We're in Alexandria, Virginia. Thankful to be here this morning, but this is not it, all right? But he says here, You've already come. You have come. And what it's what's capturing for us is this already not yet tension that we feel throughout all the Bible. Already. This scene describes their current position. So this morning, if you're a Christian, meaning not you showed up at the right time, in the right place, wore the right clothes, stand up, sit down, sing songs when you're supposed to, but I mean, have you turned from your sin and trusted in Christ and born again? If that's you, he says there's something that's already true about you. Your current position is that your names, they have been written in the Lamb's book of life. You've been seated in the heavenlies in Christ, already seated there, he says. But there's, already, there's also a, a not yet reality, right? All this that's already yet, yours is not yet fully experienced. That's why if you look over chapter 13, verse 14, uh, verse 13 says, Therefore let us go out to him, Jesus, outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here... We have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. In chapter 12, he says, this city is yours. You're already there. You've come there. But in chapter 13, he says, and you're not there yet. It's already not yet. Which is it? It's both. You've not fully experienced that yet. You have come, yet you're still seeking. And what what this is intended to do, it's, it's given to move us to persevere in faith Till we no longer need hope, and we no longer need faith, but we receive by sight 
and experience. What he's painting before us is the same thing that um, that Christian had in Pilgrim's Progress. The whole way through there, I went on the Google books and I, I searched how many times Celestial City and Zion show up. It's everywhere. He's talking about it all the time. It's what's before his, his eyes. It's the same for the Christian here. And it's interesting, he, he gives seven parallel examples. As he gave seven things about Mount Sinai, well, he gives seven things here about Mount Zion and where they have come. First, you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. I'm sure if you know this or not, but if, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you'll know that Mount Zion was the name of a hill in the Jebusite city of Jerusalem. And King David came in in 2 Samuel chapter 5 and he captured the city. And the city became known as the city of David. And it was in that place, Jerusalem, Zion, that the Ark of the Covenant was placed and the temple was built. So Mount Zion and Jerusalem and the temple became synonymous for one another. It's the same place. It's all this, the city of David. The place that the Lord loves, the psalm says. And what happened over time was that the prophets began to speak of Zion as the promised heavenly kingdom that is yet to come. So yes, there's a physical place, Jerusalem, but he says there's another place that's coming, the prophets foretold of. And he says here, you have come to Mount Zion. Now, he's not talking about a geographical location. He's talking about a heavenly location. And this is unique among world religions. So there's no geographical center to Christianity. Sorry, people who love Rome, but it's just not. Okay? Just like in Islam, there's Mecca, and in Judaism, there's Jerusalem, but it's not the same for Christianity. Our geographic location isn't a building, or a city, or on the earth, but it is the place that Abraham hoped for in Hebrews 11.10. He was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. That place that Jesus said in John 14, that he went to prepare a place for us. That is it. He says, you have come there already to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. Called that because God's ever-living, abiding presence is there with his people. It bears his name. And as we go through these, I want you to picture, it's like, it's like the author is saying, church who's listening to this, Delray Baptist Church, Come with me on a tour of what you have inherited. Come first and see this city. And then it's like he's going to take us inside the city and he's going to show us, see what's inside the city. To innumerable angels in festal gathering. What fills this heavenly city? Angels beyond number. Gathered for the purpose of celebration. There's a festival. He's, it's like the author says, do you see this, this festival of heavenly joy? Glorious beings dressed in radiance, filled with songs about God. Listen to this from Revelation 5. John says, I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain 
to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth, in the sea and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. That's what's going on in heaven. That there are angels who are singing about the glory of the Lamb who is slain. The author's like, you've come there. See it with your eyes of faith. And you know what's pretty amazing about that? So there's another scene where we see angels in heaven. Anybody know where it is? Right, Isaiah 6. So Isaiah 6, Isaiah gets caught up, and he's there, and there's these angels. And you remember what they're crying out before God? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And it says with two wings they flew, and with two they covered their eyes, and two they covered their feet, because they couldn't even look upon him because he's so holy. That's some 700 years, that scene in Isaiah 6, before Jesus came. This scene is however many thousands of years later. And the angels still have not gotten over God. They are still singing about Him. They're still amazed by Him. So any of you who are kind of worried about like, what's church, or what's heaven going to be like? Is it going to be kind of boring? Is it going to be like this, you know, this, this Baptist church that I was in? You know, with hard pews and long prayers and singing. and that, is, that, is that what it's going to be like? Oh, oh, it is going to be beyond comprehension. The angels, the angels can't stop singing about it. For thousands of years, they're overwhelmed with God. We shall be too. But those angels are not alone. Hebrews 1.14 tells us, gives us a job description of an angel, and it tells you that their purpose, what they're intended to do, they're servants of those who will inherit salvation. They give aid to people who will trust in Christ. And that's the next thing he shows us. You've come to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. At Mount Sinai, the assembly was forced to stay back, and only Moses and Aaron and Joshua were permitted to ascend the mountain, but not at Mount Zion. Here we find all believers from all time. Saints whose number are like the sand on the seashore and the stars in the sky, just as God had promised to Abraham. This assembly of the firstborn. It's it's a way of describing God's children. God's children are given the privilege of being His children. We get God's inheritance All that is his is freely given to us in Christ because Jesus purchased it with his his blood. He says, look around, church. See that assembly in heaven. They're enrolled in heaven there. The book called the Lamb's Book of Life. And in it are written the names of God's elect. Revelation 13 says that their names were written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. Well, here we see God's eternal plan brought to fruition. They are assembled together. Hear this from Revelation 7. I looked and behold a great number that no one could count. From from every nation, from all the tribes and the peoples and the languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. 
Then one of the elders, likely an angel, said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. And they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The author is showing us here this heavenly assembly with all of God's people from all time. And he says, you've come here already. Then fourthly, to, to God, the judge of all. At Mount Sinai, God was heard. His presence was felt. His presence even shook them. But they never saw him. We, however, the promise of the gospel is that we will see him. We will see his face, Revelation 22, 4 says. And how will we see him? As father? Yes, we will see him as father, but also as judge. Which, pause, this is where if you think back to Mount, Mount uh, Sinai, this should make us tremble. That we will stand before this holy God? Who, who can stand? Because the God of Zion is the same God of Sinai. Holy and glorious. The one in Hebrews 4 that says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So should we tremble in fear then at this prospect of seeing God as judge? Well, fear has its place, and we'll see that in just a moment. But for we who are in Christ, we no longer fear judgment. We no longer fear the prospect that God would be our judge. Why? Because of what He has done on our behalf in Christ. Something else from Pilgrim's Progress. It's my last one. Christian's talking about, he says, by laws and ordinances you will not be saved since you cannot come in by the door. Meaning you cannot, you cannot enter heaven, the celestial city, Mount Zion, by being good enough. He says, thus I comfort myself as I go. As I go to that day where I will see God as judge, this is how he comforts himself. He says, surely I think, when I come to the gate of the city, the Lord thereof will know me for good, since I have his coat on my back. A coat that he gave me in the day that he stripped me of my rags. The coat he's talking about there is the coat of the righteousness of Christ. That's what happens when someone becomes a Christian. Right now, if you're not a Christian, John chapter 3 says that you are already condemned. It's, it, there's no wait and see, die with your fingers crossed. We'll see how it turns out when we get there. There's no Rob Bell second chance kind of stuff. There is, you die once, and then there is judgment. Standing before this holy God. So if you're not a Christian this morning, we are thankful that you're here. We think there's no better place for you to be. But we want you to know 
that God's word says that you are, just like all of us have been at one point, condemned under the wrath of God because of our sin. But what happens at conversion is God in His mercy intervenes and He comes down and He grabs a hold of a dirty, broken sinner. And He takes off their rags that He talked about there. The same type of thing that He did with Adam and Eve when they covered themselves with fig leaves in the garden. Do you remember what He did? He came and He tore them off and He replaced Adam and Eve's garment with the garment of skin. An innocent animal died in their place and was covered their unrighteousness. Well, in in Christ, that's what happens for us. That God in His mercy comes and He takes away our garments of sin and self-righteousness and He gives us a coat. The coat is the righteousness of Christ to where now we stand before God and He deals with us as if we were Jesus. We are not Jesus. We are not as good as Jesus. We are not righteous. But God in His mercy treats us as if we were because of our union with Jesus. That is good news. That's what Christian in Pilgrim's Progress said. That was his hope when he would arrive to the celestial city. Not that he would show up and say, God, look at my resume. I killed it. I ain't going to work. Who can stand before God? All of our deeds done in in selfishness and self-righteousness not done for His glory are like filthy rags. But it would be for us to come and to say, I stand in the righteousness of another. I stand in the righteousness of Your Son who died and took the judgment that I deserved and rose in righteousness and now gave me His, His own. So for the Christian... The prospect of standing before God and being judged for our sins no longer rests over us. There is a judgment for the believer to be examined for our our works, and that's another sermon for another day, but what he is pointing towards here is that day of standing before God as judge where we can rejoice because of what Christ has done on our behalf. And that's what he talks about with this fist thing here. to, To the spirits you have come, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. It's, it's the same assembly as, as the firstborn, but the emphasis here is on them being made perfect. Jesus gives righteousness to his bride as a garment, and he has given his spirit to her, the church, to make her radiant with righteous deeds. In Revelation 19, it talks about that, that scene where the bride comes, and that she is dressed in a garment of purity. It shines bright. So she has made herself ready. It is granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saint. So on that last day, when we stand before God Almighty, we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And in some sense, the radiance of the deeds which we have done in faith now as God's people, not working for salvation, but responding in light of salvation, it radiates for all of eternity to the glory of God as the beauty of the bride who Jesus rescued for himself. Can you imagine? Did you catch that word there? The righteous made perfect. I don't know about you, but I I long for that day where sin will be no more. Can you imagine that day? 
and you'll sin no more. Where your heart won't even desire it. That you'll be nothing but pure and holy like Christ. He says, that's yours in Christ. And sixthly, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. You have come to Jesus. Jesus is not only our heavenly bridegroom, but he is our eternal high priest who mediates a covenant. Not like the covenant that God made with Moses that condemned people in their transgressions, but a new covenant by which God forgives our transgressions and casts them as far as the east is from the west. And all of Hebrews has really been pointing to to this To see Jesus for who he is, that he is precious, that he is glorious, that he is good, and that he is worth trusting all the way home, and that we will be with him forever. He says, you have come to Jesus. And finally, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. He mentions here sprinkling blood and speaking blood. So the blood of Jesus is sprinkled. It would hearken their their minds back to the day of atonement where an animal would be, an unblemished animal would be slain on behalf of the nation and the, the blood would be sprinkled on the Ark of the Covenant, on the mercy seat, so that when God looked down from heaven, he would not see his broken law, but he would see shed blood. He said, that blood has been sprinkled upon you meaning it's been applied to our account if we are in Christ. So God looks down and sees not you as a lawbreaker, but rather he sees the atoning work of his son. And he receives you if you're in Christ and you have peace with God. The blood of Jesus is sprinkled, but the blood of Jesus also speaks. Now that's interesting. The blood of Jesus speaks. Well, what does it say? Well, it speaks a better word than Abel. Well, what does Abel's blood speak? Well, you remember back in Genesis 4, Cain killed his brother Abel because Abel offered offerings to the Lord and the Lord loved his offerings because he brought them in faith. And after Cain killed Abel, the Lord came to Cain and he said, What have you done? The voice of of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. What was Abel's blood crying out for? Justice. Justice. The author of Hebrews says here that Jesus' blood cries out something better. What? Mercy. Mercy. Sins paid in full. Transgressions in your account covered. It is finished. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Jesus' blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Mercy. Mercy. Mercy for sinners like us. What this author is doing here in this scene is he's calling us to behold our gospel privilege. And there is a privilege that God gives his people in the gospel. That because of Jesus, 
We come to Mount, si- or to Mount Zion not like we did to Mount Sinai, trembling and knowing that we are condemned and we have no way to see or hear from God, but rather in Christ we come dressed in His righteousness and we come boldly to the throne of grace and we see Him and we get Him and we get the joy and the joyful hope of our heavenly home forevermore. And the author is giving this to them and to us to help us to respond. Which brings us to our third and final consideration. Where he's going to give a a sobering reminder that is intended to produce grateful worship. Verse 25. In light of all of that, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned on the earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yes, once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of all things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. What he does here in this final few verses is he gives them a warning for their heart, and he gives them something to warm their heart, just as he's been doing all the way through this book. This is the fifth of five warnings in the book of Hebrews. God has given these warnings, as we've talked about, He's given them to his people to awaken sleepy pilgrims who've been ensnared on the journey toward the celestial city. To alert people whose affections have been dulled by love for the world. Who've been discouraged by the circumstances that they find themselves in. Who fear persecution and just think, it'd just be easier to go back. What he does here is he gives this warning which is intended to make us fear. I thought you said we weren't supposed to fear. Well, there is a way that we do fear and there is a way that we do not fear as Christians. You see, there is a fear that is bad that leads you to run away from God like Adam did in the garden. And that only leads to judgment. But there is a fear that is good that leads you to run to God knowing that He alone is your refuge, He alone is your forgiveness, your help, your healing, and your sustaining grace. And that's what warnings like this are intended to do. And that's what He's done all the way through this book. In chapter 2, He told them, do not drift from the word that you heard. In 3 and 4, He warned them and said, if you hear His voice today, do not harden your hearts. In 5 and 6, He said, do not be dull of hearing. And in chapter 10, He said, do not go on sinning willfully after receiving this knowledge of the truth. And now in verse 25, he says, do not refuse him who is speaking. In chapter 1, we were told that Jesus, that in these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son. He says, the Son has spoken. Don't refuse him. And in verse 24 of chapter 12, we just heard that his blood speaks even now. Pardon, mercy. He says, don't refuse him. To refuse means to have nothing to do with. To dismiss passionately. 
And this is, again, you'll remember the, in the Hebrews, the context here is the sin of apostasy. One where they were going to renounce Jesus. Where they had made a public profession, they had been baptized, they were taking the Lord's Supper, they were singing the same song, they would have been sitting right next to you, but then, because of whatever pressures, either from sin or circumstance or persecutors, they said, we're not going to follow Jesus anymore. He's no longer my Lord. I don't think that he's a sacrifice for sinners. I don't think he's coming back. Or even if I do, I'm not, I'm not following him anymore. And they turned their backs and they went the other way after whatever else. For this church to have been tempted toward Judaism, for us, if we were to list all the things that tempt us to turn away, we would be here all day. He says, do not refuse him. For... What would God do to those who hear the glories of heaven and see the treasure of his son and the preciousness of his blood and then turn away and refuse to love him and to listen to him and to be thankful to him and to follow him? And what he does here in this text, he says, if God judged Israel who heard a word from Sinai, how much more Will he judge those who have heard a word from Zion? And then in 26 and 27, he quotes from Haggai 2, talking about how God promises to shake the earth. At Sinai, he shook Mount Sinai. But Haggai, there's a promise that one day God is going to come and he's going he's to shake the heavens and the earth. He's going to shake all of existence. It's a picture of the final judgment. That anything that can be shaken will be shaken. This is like Jesus at the end of the Sermon on the Mount where he talks about you're going to build a house either on rock, my word, through obedience, or on sand through disobedience. Because there's a storm a-coming. It's the same kind of, of picture here. And what it's intended to do is it's either supposed to strike terror or hope in our hearts. For those who are, who are not Christians or for those who have turned away from Christ and are running away from him in rebellion, you should hear this as a warning, a strong warning. For those who will not surrender to him by repenting of their sins and trusting in Christ, there is nothing that awaits except a terrifying expectation of judgment. That's what Hebrews chapter 10 says. I'm not talking about losing your salvation here in case you're visiting with us this morning and it's the first time you've heard it. It's been very clear that you don't lose your salvation. It's a gift from God. What we're talking about is saving faith is a persevering faith, a faith that makes it all the way home. And this author is calling us to keep trusting and to not follow timid and distrust down the hill, but to keep following Christian up the hill. So if you know yourself today to not be a Christian or you know yourself to be running from Jesus, I would call you to tremble before the God whom one day you will see as judge and to hear these words of mercy that he has given to your ears today and turn to Jesus and know the mercy that he gives to sinners like us. But as it falls upon ears who need to hear it in a way that brings terror, it also brings hope. It brings hope for Christians. So for those who know Jesus and love Jesus and are striving to follow after him and confessing when we don't, repenting and struggling all the way home, we know that there is a day coming when shakable things will be shaken. 
Do you ever just grow weary of this fleeting, futile, trivial world? Weary of threatening and persecution and oppression. He says, there is a day coming when all of it will be shaken. When cancer will be crushed. When racism will be eradicated. When pornography that leads hearts astray will be purged forever. When ISIS and Boko Haram and Al-Shabaab will bow the knee to King Jesus. When dead religion and false teachers and hypocrisy will be done away with forevermore. He says, the whole world will be shaken. What that's supposed to do is make God's people say, Amen, come soon, Lord Jesus. And to make us thankful. Therefore, verse 28, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The right response to God's gracious work in Christ is gratefulness. A thankful heart that recognizes that God in Christ does not deal with us as our sins deserve. That's amazing. We consider the treasure that cannot be stolen. The promises that will not fail. The hope that cannot be repossessed. The salvation that will forever be enjoyed. That place that we saw the picture of, he says, you've come there and we're almost there. What that does is it ought to produce thankfulness and gratefulness. Not a grumbling heart. I would say that oftentimes when we find ourselves grumbling and complaining, it's because we've not set our heart and our loves upon Zion, but probably have sought too much comfort from this world. This gratefulness is to produce also acceptable worship. A response to God's grace that aims to please Him. It alters our waiting between now and the day when we see Him. And what is this this worship? Well, chapter 13, which we're going to be taking kind of a verse at a time for a while to go through, it's brotherly love, hospitality, compassion on uh, the suffering brothers and sisters, purity in our sexuality, contentment, rejecting false teachers, risking to follow Jesus. All of those things are acceptable worship before God. And we'll have many weeks to think about that together. He says, this is done also with a posture of the heart that has reverence and awe. The Christian heart is filled with both rejoicing and revering at the same time. Adoration and all. Those things fuel one another. As we see the greatness of God, it produces gratefulness in our hearts that moves us to worship, knowing that He is indeed a consuming fire. Brothers and sisters, what this is intended to do for us is to lift our hearts, to lift our eyes, to behold what is laid before us and the promise that it is worth it to keep going up the hill of difficulty, to go through the valley of the shadow of death that comes after, and to trust that the Good Shepherd will lead us home through the gates of the celestial city to see God 
and to hear the singing of the angels and to be reunited with saints who have gone before and who will come after and to see God and to see Jesus and to forever say thank you to him for the blood that cries out mercy on behalf of people who have no business being there. That is the hope that's laid before us. And brothers and sisters, I want you to know we are almost home. We're almost there. Almost there. Don't give up. Keep trusting. And let's press on to the celestial city.